Hey guys, this is Weston Brown, and this is week six of our study called Lagos Foundations of Effective Bible Study. And this is actually the final week of this study, and so I hope it's been meaningful or enjoyable or enlightening in some way to you. Uh, next week, we're actually going to start with a new study called Gospel Fluency, and this is based on a book by Jeff Vanderstelt, who is the pastor at uh, Doxa Church in Washington State, uh, formerly, and, and I guess he still is a part of the, the Soma family of churches, but pastor at Soma Church for many years, uh, and, and there have been several really great teachers that have come out of that community. And uh, this is Jeff's second book. His first book was just called Saturate. And there are a lot of great resources that he's been a part of that are available online at a website called Saturate the World. I think it's .com, maybe .org, saturatetheworld.com. But yeah, a lot of great content out there by Jeff Vanderstelt. And uh, we're excited to start this book and just talk more about how do we become more conversant in the gospel. How do we... Uh, weave the gospel into the fabric of everyday life by reorienting our lives around the gospel. It's not just asking the question, how do we talk about it more? It's how do we become people who are so shaped and formed by the gospel that it just naturally is the way that we live and speak and think. And so that begins next week. This week we're wrapping up our study on... uh, how to study the Bible. We're, we've been talking about inductive Bible study for the last six weeks. And if you remember, inductive Bible study has three parts, observation, interpretation, and application. And for the last, uh, this week and last week, we're looking at interpretation. And we're kind of circling back around at this point to dig into some elements of interpretation that are a little more challenging or Uh, that maybe we just didn't have time to tackle in the first uh, class on interpretation a few weeks ago. And so today we're going to start with looking at how, what do we do with language in the Bible that seems to be symbolic or figurative or metaphorical? Uh, What do we do with that stuff? Because the Bible really, on the whole, is pretty plain. You know, I'm I'm a strong believer that if if you will just read the Bible... Not, not cherry-picking verses here and there, or even pulling out paragraphs here and there, but if you'll just read the Bible, if you'll read the book of Romans, that, you know, for the most part, the Bible makes itself pretty plain and pretty clear. And, and I think in most cases, the interpretation is not difficult or obtuse or hard to get to. Um, That said, there are some passages in Scripture that are supernatural in nature, and so just just because of that, they're a little bit more confusing to us. There are passages in Scripture that are intended to be symbolic, and it can be difficult to know what to do there. There are passages that are meant to be artistic and poetic, and what comes along with that can be uh, metaphorical language or artis- artistic language. And uh, I want to just start today by looking at a few passages. And, and what I want us to see is that it's pretty easy to quickly figure out how we should be interpreting a passage, whether we should be walking down this road of treating it as something that is meant to be symbolic or if we should be treating it as something literal. And I want us to see that, by and large, whenever we read a passage, we can pretty quickly tell if it should be literal or if it's symbolic or metaphorical in some way. And so, if you have your Bible, I think this would probably be helpful for you to open it and uh, just kind of follow along with us. The first passage we're going to look at is in Matthew 28. And this is a really famous passage, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. This is a famous passage not only because it closes out the book of Matthew, but also because this is the section that's known as the Great Commission. 
And so chances are you have heard this passage uh, dozens, if not hundreds of times. And here's what it says, and if you have your Bible, I hope you'll read along with us. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now take just a moment and think about that passage and ask yourself the question, is this metaphorical? And, and we're talking about interpretation here. So should I interpret this as something that is symbolic in some way? Or is this something that should be interpreted literally? And I think what you will quickly see is that this is something that should be interpreted literally. Now, how do we arrive at that? Well, the first thing we want to ask is, the first question we want to ask is, what, what book is this? Where, where do we find this passage? Well, you know, we've talked and talked and talked and talked about the importance of context, and that's still the case this week as well. Uh, certainly, when we're doing the work of interpretation, we've said that without an accurate context um, and really kind of delving into what all was there contextually, it can be difficult to arrive at a correct interpretation. And so, what is the context of this? Well, this is the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew is primarily a biography of sorts about the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus. And so, to some extent, it is presented in a uh, chronological, historical fashion, um, where one thing happens and then another thing happens, and you kind of see the chain of events that has led up to this point. And, And so... That is a really great clue for us that more than likely that this is something that should be read literally. Certainly if we're reading a book of history, if we're reading um, a biography of a president, let's say Abraham Lincoln, you're probably not going to get to chapter 14 in, in this biography of President Lincoln and suddenly decide, oh, this is something that should be metaphorical rather than literal. He didn't metaphorically sign the Emancipation Proclamation. That was something that literally happened. And so, as we've said in previous weeks, some of the same rules that we apply to normal everyday language and and also to literature also pretty much apply to the Bible. Um, So it would be strange for us to, you know, spend this entire book learning about all of these things that happened in the life of Jesus and then get to this point and decide, oh, well, no, When Jesus said, um, go and make disciples of all nations, he wasn't saying, I want you to literally go and make disciples of all nations. He was just being, um, you know, metaphorical in some way. And that's certainly not the case here. So uh, the book, the content of the book, the context um, tells us a lot about what do we do with a passage. Um, You know, something else that's interesting to consider here is that by and large, when we think about this passage, we we who are followers of Jesus, we take this to be something that is for us as well. We we take this command to go and make disciples of all nations to be something that wasn't just for the uh, 11 disciples who were left at this point, but that this is something that is for all believers. And so, in line with some of this, as we talk about interpretation, here's a question for you to think about. Why do we think that, right? How do we get to that point? How do we go, hey, here, when Jesus is speaking directly to these followers and telling them this particular thing, how do we then jump to, and so that also is true for us? And the answer to that question is, it's, it's because we view ourselves as disciples of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have uh, found your hope and your future in the person of Jesus Christ, then you are a disciple of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, then you are a disciple of Jesus. 
Um, I think some people that have grown up in evangelical America have inadvertently been taught that there are Christians, and then there is this maybe kind of upper tier of Christian called disciple. And that's not true at all. There are only disciples. And, um, and so because we consider ourselves to be disciples, we take this as a command that is for us as well, because the command was for Jesus's remaining 11 disciples, for them to go and reproduce themselves. Jesus had reproduced himself in them. That's kind of the purpose of discipleship. Discipleship is essentially apprenticeship. So if you're apprenticing to be a carpenter or an electrician, then there is some kind of master above you that is teaching you and instructing you, showing you how to do things. And the intention is at some point, he or she you know, has kind of reproduced themselves in you, where they've kind of taught you everything that they know, and now you are released to, to go and do it yourself. And, and so that's what's happening here. Jesus has reproduced himself and his teaching in the lives of his disciples, and then he's telling them, I now want you to go and reproduce yourself. And in doing so, it's this reproduction of Jesus, which is why we call the church the body of Christ. He is the head, but he has sent his followers, disciples, to take his gospel message to the world. And so because we consider ourselves to be disciples, and because we consider ourselves to ultimately be a product of these original disciples being obedient to Jesus, then we also take this as a command that is for us. Hope that makes sense. Let's look at another passage now and ask the question, is this literal or is this figurative? And we're going to go back to the Old Testament now. This is in the book of Daniel. This is chapter 3 of Daniel, verses 26 and 27. Uh, Daniel chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. Now, before we even read this, you know, what kind of book is Daniel? Um, well, Daniel is considered to be a book of prophecy. Um, now, it is not only a book of prophecy, meaning every word in the book of Daniel is not necessarily a prophetic word, but Daniel was considered to be a prophet, and there certainly is prophecy within the book, and we also find a lot of interesting things like dream visions and the interpretation of dreams. And so, typically, whenever we encounter prophecy or we encounter dreams or visions or anything like that, in the book of Revelation is the same way, typically we're going to find language that's meant to be metaphorical or symbolic. And so, uh, let's read Daniel 3, 26 and 27. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar was the king, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the hot fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. So do you read this literally or figuratively? I think that can be a tough question uh, when you're thinking about books of the Old Testament that are meant to be uh, prophetic in nature. But here, if you again, if you're reading the whole book of Daniel, then what you find is, in addition to the prophetic, you're also getting sort of a biographical, historical account of the life of Daniel. And Daniel also has these three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you know the story, you know that King Nebuchadnezzar had ordered that these three be thrown into a fiery furnace. And so where we pick up in the story with these two verses... Uh, the men are being called out of the fiery furnace because they have not burned up in the furnace. And as we saw, the kind of the political leaders, the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors, and everybody kind of comes around and is examining them. And, and this is intended to be read 
as uh, an actual account of events, of, of actual human events that happen, not as some kind of symbolic thing, symbolically not burn up in the fire. Um, and this isn't an allegory or anything like that. And an allegory is something where the characters or uh, the characteristics of a story represent something else. That's not what's happening here. So, again, uh, we read this literally. Okay, uh, let's look at another passage. Let's look at Revelation. Uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 and 16. Turn over there. Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 and through 16. And it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. All right, well, there's a lot there. Uh, do you read that literally, or do you read that figurat figuratively? Chances are, uh, it's, it's pretty clear to you that what we're reading here is something that is intended to be symbolic. And, and certainly the book of Revelation uh, I mean, pretty much this whole book is prophetic because the book begins with the Apostle John uh, claiming to have had a vision. And, and so when, when your book begins that way, going, hey, I had a vision and here's what was a part of my vision, then you can rest assured that much of what you're going to see is meant to be read symbolically or metaphorically or figuratively, in the same way that when you have a dream at night. Um, these aren't literal things that are happening in the moment in your dream. Um, and you wake up and you kind of go, man, what in the world did that mean, right? And some of that same stuff is true when we read the book of Revelation. Now, that's not to diminish in any way the content of Revelation or of the prophetic books. This is still very much the Word of God, even though it can be confusing and difficult to, you know, figure out how do we, you know, what do we do with this and how do we move forward in this book with, with some sense of application, with some sense of what does this mean to me. And, and, and I, I think that can be a really difficult thing. Uh, but certainly, as we're reading this, it is meant to be read figuratively, you know, Revelation talks about a lot of different things. There are a lot of different symbolic elements in Revelation. You read about bowls of wrath and uh, pale horses and just all of these kinds of things. And, um, you know, it's our belief ultimately that Revelation is an account of the last days. Uh, but it can also be very difficult and problematic for us to apply this because we, our nature is to want to begin trying to connect the dots between things that we see in the book of Revelation and things that we see in our modern world. And one of the things that we know from Scripture is that no one knows the time or the date when Jesus will return. Um, and in fact, I think that the Bible indicates to us that Jesus doesn't even know when that will be, that only the Father knows when that will be. And so if you believe that the Bible is true, well, the Bible has clearly stated to you that no one knows except the Father. And yet, as you look throughout human history, you see people who have tried to take books like Revelation or Isaiah or other prophetic books of the Bible, and they've tried to connect the dots between uh, what they saw in those books and what they perceived to be apocalyptic events that were happening in their age. Jesus talks about um, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which was a real event that happened in 70 AD. And um, it's something that he prophesied about, right? He said, like, you know, there won't be two stones left sitting on top of each other. And so this is something that he prophesied. It's a literal event that came to pass, and it was kind of an apocalyptic event, certainly for 
the Hebrews, we try to do some of that same stuff today, but it always proves to be foolishness. It always proves to be folly. How many times have you heard people who have some kind of end of time prediction or somebody who, who has said, hey, I know exactly when uh, Jesus is going to come back. And how many times has that borne out to be just completely untrue and completely false? And so as we're interpreting some of these books, I think we have to be careful uh, to interpret within the context of what, of, of, you know, in which we're reading. And I think we have to be careful to not um, try to draw lines between what we see and whatever the most uh, current, you know, global political crisis happens to be. So just be very careful with that. Uh, the last passage I want to look at uh, before we move on is Matthew 17. And these, these are verses 1 through 5. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 5. And this is an account known as the Transfiguration. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here if you wish. I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So, again, is this literal, or is this figurative? And this one might be a little bit more tricky for you. I don't know. Um, Here's just a rule that I would throw out there. Don't automatically assume that just because something supernatural is happening in a particular passage, that that means that the passage is figurative or symbolic. Because that is not true, necessarily. Um, We should not be surprised when our supernatural God works in supernatural ways. Uh, Even if you're considering the ministry of Jesus, Jesus does all kinds of supernatural things. He heals people. He drives out demons. He brings people back from the dead. Um, If we were to try to say, hey, anytime you see something supernatural, that's meant to be figurative or symbolic. Not only are you diminishing God's power and His ability to work in supernatural ways uh, by kind of writing it off as something that should be figurative, uh, but you're also kind of missing the point of what's happening. And, And so here in the book of Matthew... Uh, We do read this as a literal event that happened in human history, and that when Scripture says that Jesus' face was transfigured and that it shone like the sun and that Moses and Elijah appeared and they heard a booming voice from heaven saying the same thing that was said when Jesus was baptized, which is, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, that when uh, Matthew's gospel says all of those things happen, that we believe that those are literal things that happen because within the context of Matthew, again, just as we saw earlier in Matthew 28, in the context of Matthew, this is presented as an actual event. And it's really not, you know, out of line with any of the other kind of amazing supernatural things that happen in the ministry of Jesus. And so... Hopefully what you see, just by looking at these four passages, is that, first of all, most of the time, what we're reading is literal. Most of the time, what you're reading is not meant to be symbolic or figurative, and you don't have to kind of do some gymnastics to figure out what the meaning is or what the interpretation should be. Um, and, And so let's, with that in mind, let's just look at some quick rules for determining Uh, the literal, and the figurative. All right, rules for determining whether something should be figurative or literal. The first thing is we're going to use the literal sense unless there's a good reason not to. We're going to use the literal sense unless there's a good reason not to. And that's what I just said. Pretty much everything that you're going to read is meant to be read literally and taken literally. And then there are some things 
that you will encounter uh, that I think most of the time will make themselves pretty plain uh, that are meant to be read figuratively or metaphorically or symbolically. And um, So we want to use the literal sense unless there's a good reason not to. And this falls in line with our second rule, which is this. Use the figurative when the passage tells you to do so. You know, so we were talking about Revelation, and, and so when the Apostle John says, hey, I had this vision, and here's what I saw in this vision, or if you're reading the book of Daniel again, and Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I had this dream, and here's what I saw in this dream, that's Scripture telling you, hey, what you're about to read is probably going to be weird or symbolic or figurative in some way. Likewise, when Jesus is teaching one of his parables, the parables are kind of like allegories where uh, the characters or the elements of the parable are intended to represent something else. And most often what they're intended to represent is, uh, or it's intended to give us a picture of, is the the kingdom of God. And, And often Jesus will begin the parables by saying, the kingdom of God is like dot, dot, dot. It's like a man who found a buried treasure in a field, and so he went and you know sold everything that he had to buy the field so that he could have the treasure. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And so it's not Jesus telling us that, hey, once upon a time there was this actual man who found a, an enormous treasure buried in a field. No, no, no. He's using that metaphor of a man finding a treasure in a field to describe to us Uh, how incredible the kingdom of God is and that it is worth us selling everything for. Um, It's worth us giving everything for. And so we want to use the figurative when the passage tells us to do so. Um, And I think most of the time, that's not necessarily what we're going to wind up doing. Most of the time we're going to wind up reading things literally. Uh, Number three... We're going to use the figurative if a literal meaning is impossible or absurd. We're going to use a literal meaning, um, or a figurative meaning rather. We're going to use a figurative meaning if a literal meaning is impossible or absurd. So here's an example of this. In John chapter 6, verses 53 through 58, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, this is a a great example of something that is impossible or absurd. Um, And and Jesus is not uh, intending to be hyper-literal here. Um, And I think a great uh, other passage that you can look at where Jesus talks this way is uh, the story of the woman at the well, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. Because Jesus says this to her. He says, I I have water, uh, and if you drink this water, you will never thirst again. Now, Jesus did not actually have this magic water For this woman to drink so that she would never be physically thirsty again. That's not what he was talking about, right? He was talking about the gospel. He was talking about himself and what he had come to do and would do ultimately on the cross and through his resurrection, right? It is this life, uh, this, this life eternal that we receive because of his body and his blood. And when we uh, metaphorically feast on his flesh and drink his blood, when, when we kind of become one with him in that way, then truly we will never be hungry again. Much like the Israelites in the wilderness who ate manna um, and who ultimately died. This wasn't bread that was meant to somehow make them immortal. But Jesus is saying, my flesh is like bread, 
come down from the Father, just in the same way that the Father sent manna to the Israelites in the Old Testament. The Father has sent me, but I'm the bread of life. And I'm the bread that if you eat this bread, um, you will never, uh, you, you will live forever, is what he says. And it's, it's very similar to him talking about this living water where you will never thirst again. And so I think it's really clear when we read this that Jesus is being hyperbolic. He's being hyperbolic. He's, he's not saying, you literally have to eat me and you literally have to drink me. And if that's true, then we have no hope of salvation because we have no access to the literal, actual, physical body and blood of Jesus. But if you've come up in a uh, maybe a Roman Catholic tradition, you're familiar with a doctrine called transubstantiation, which is something that comes... Uh, when people try to read this passage literally. In order to read this passage literally, and not just treat it as something that is, um, you know, something that is meant to be hyperbolic or something that is meant to be metaphorical, when you try to read it literally, then what you have to do is you have to do these gymnastics to figure out how that actually applies in the world today. And so you have people who have had to kind of concoct this doctrine that says when you take communion, even though you're eating regular human bread and you're drinking regular human wine, that somehow, through God's power, when it enters your body, uh, it, it somehow becomes the, the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. Well, let's be clear. At no point in Scripture uh, do we find that teaching. And, and certainly, in this passage, we don't find that teaching. Jesus isn't talking about communion here. That, that comes way later. And, and in the passages where he teaches communion to his disciples, he certainly doesn't say anything um, about it entering your body and becoming his flesh and blood. But he does draw that symbolic parallel between this passage in John 6 and that Last Supper passage where Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. You know, take and eat and this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. We see that symbolic uh, connection between those two things. But this is meant to be metaphorical. We should read it as metaphorical even though uh, we do find we find life and we find hope uh, in the body and the blood of Jesus. I hope that makes sense. Jesus is pointing us uh, through metaphorical language to a uh, a truth about him and about what he had come to do. And this text points us to a present reality that even today through the body and the blood of Jesus, meaning through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, uh, we have the opportunity to become a part of God's family and to live with God uh, as a part of his family forever. And so what Jesus is saying here is true, even though it isn't literal. I hope that makes sense. So we want to use the figurative sense uh, if a literal meaning is impossible or absurd. Next, we want to use the figurative if a literal meaning would involve something unconscionable. We want to use a figurative meaning if a literal meaning would involve something unconscionable. Or I would say, uh, even kind of in line with that, even if it's not necessarily unconscionable, we want to use a figurative meaning if a literal meaning would clearly fly in the face of some other very clear literal teaching. And so an example of that is Luke chapter 14 and verse 26. Luke 14 verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus seemingly very clearly says here, in order for you to follow me in the way that I want you to follow me, then you have to hate other people. But hopefully you realize that if, if that is your interpretation of this passage, not only is that 
unconscionable within the scheme of the whole of Scripture, but it also flies in the face of some other very clear teaching of Jesus. And, and I think most prominently, what's known as the Shema, which is an Old Testament teaching that Jesus also affirms and um, recontextualizes to some extent. And it's the idea that we are to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus says that the whole of the law and the prophets are summed up in that teaching, meaning everything that God wanted the nation of Israel to be is summed up in loving God by loving people. And so Jesus has clearly taught us to love. He taught his disciples to love, right? He, he told his disciples that people will, um, people will take notice of the way that you love each other. And so if suddenly he's teaching here that in order to be his follower, you have to hate people, well, that just doesn't make any sense. So we want to dig a little bit further. And um, the first passage there that we just looked at is in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the Synoptic Gospels. And what that means is that there are many passages that are in all three of those Gospels. Um, And they might be a little bit different. They might be worded a bit differently. But the same stories, um, in many cases, are found in those synoptic Gospels. And so, uh, we also see Jesus talk about this same idea uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10, verses 36 through 38. And here's how it is phrased in Matthew's gospel, and I think it makes more sense or is more clear when we read it in Matthew's gospel. It says, And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of me, and whoever does not take his cross um, and follow me is not worthy of me. So here, Jesus is speaking more in terms of the level of love that you have for certain things, and his point, um, the interpretation of this, the meaning of this, is Jesus is saying, "I want to be first, and if you're not willing to make me first." Right? If you're not willing to love other people or other things less than the love that you have for me, then you are not worthy of me, is what he says. And so if we really see Jesus for who he is, right? if we really believe in what Jesus has done, then Jesus is the kind of Savior, he's the kind of Lord that is worth giving everything for, as we've said, And if we truly want to follow him in the way that he has called us to, then his desire is that he would be foremost in our lives. And that to maybe people who are onlookers uh, in our lives, that it would appear as if we love our family less than we love Jesus. Um, Or maybe because of the fact that the gospel is informing our decisions and we're making decisions and doing things and saying things that are just countercultural and very different from the rest of the world, that people would say, man, it's like he doesn't even like his friends anymore. He maybe hates his friends now and he's always, you know, he just seems to be doing these things that we don't understand because he or she is seeking to be obedient to the Father. Um, I think Jesus paints this kind of picture that in order for us to truly follow him in the way that he's called us to, we have to reorient our lives around him. He's not an add-on. He's not something that we fit into our uh, schedule or our lives as they exist now. No, no, no. He changes our lives and we reorient who we are and what we do around him. 
And so uh, I think uh, some scholars would say, too, that just the idea of hatred in the Hebrew world uh, was at least the words that we interpret as the word or translate as the word hatred or hate, that maybe that was not quite as vitriolic of a word as it is in today's world. Maybe it was not quite as intense of a word uh, in, in the Hebrew culture. Uh, a place where that word is used in the Old Testament is in the story of Leah and Rachel, um, two wives, and, and one, Rachel, was beloved, and the other, Leah, was, Scripture says, hated. Um, but we don't, we don't necessarily see this play out as like loathing for one or a desire that one be killed or destroyed. Um, and so I, it, we, we receive it more as a loving less. And certainly that seems to be the context of what Jesus is talking about here. So, again, that rule, we want to use the figurative sense if the literal meaning would involve something unconscionable. Certainly not loving other people would be unconscionable and out of step with the teaching of Jesus. So, um, we've gone through all of these. We, we want to use the literal sense unless there's a good reason not to. We want to use the figurative when the passage tells us to do so. We want to use the figurative sense of a literal meaning is impossible or absurd. And then as we just saw, we want to use the figurative of a, if a literal meaning would involve something unconscionable. And then finally, we want to use the figurative if a literal interpretation goes against the context. If a literal interpretation somehow goes against the context, if you're having to do all kinds of um, you know, interpretive gymnastics to arrive at a literal interpretation, then we want to use the figurative. And, and I think that's um, maybe less rare or maybe less uh, frequent than some of these other things that we've seen. Uh, also, I would say, as you're, as you're interpreting the Bible... I want, I want you to be very careful to not allegorize uh, passages in Scripture. Uh, and again, we, we've used that word. We've talked about allegories. They're just stories where the characters you know, ultimately represent something else. But we have to be careful in interpretation mode uh, about allegorizing passages of Scripture and saying that the interpretation is not literal, but instead we should be uh, kind of grabbing these characters and using them to represent something else. We have to be just very careful with that. Now, I'm not saying that that never happens in the Bible. Certainly, there's some heavy use of allegory throughout Scripture. I think we just have to be careful um, in our interpretation to not do that. Now, that said, in application, I, I do think that there are ways that we can allegorize what we're reading and it, it could potentially make sense. One of the things that we said the other day uh, in our live class was uh, the way that the story of David and Goliath often gets allegorized. Now, we believe the story of David and Goliath was a real story. David was a real guy. Goliath was a real guy. David really killed Goliath. But oftentimes in application, you might see things uh, about, you know, kind of like conquering the giants in your life. You know, what are those things? And how can you maybe have the kind of faith that David had, or rely on God in the way that David did. And so, um, in some ways, that's a, an application allegory. It's, it's, not, it's not interpretation, which is where I'm saying we have to be careful. It's more in the application, where we see some of that stuff done in preaching and in other forms of teaching within the church. And, and, I, and I think, to a certain extent, we have to be careful there, too, but um, particularly in interpretation. Uh, in our last few minutes today, let's uh, look at, uh, let's just very quickly look at uh, the poetic forms in the Old Testament, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I mean, we could spend six weeks just on Hebrew poetry, and so we're not going to do that. Um, often when we talk about poetry, we're talking about uh, the books like Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon. Um, those are books that, by and large, are poetic in nature, but we see poetry throughout the Bible, and there are lots of places where uh, the text exhibits poetic form. Um, a great example of this is Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is a poem, and sometimes 
you, I, I've heard people say Genesis chapter 1 is a poem, and what they're intending to say is that, and so we shouldn't believe any of it. Or because it's a poem, it is somehow uh, less the word of God. Um, and that's not true at all. But I do think we have to recognize uh, just the, 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 the kind of the meter or the rhythm of Genesis chapter 1. And there was morning and there was evening the first day. Like there's this refrain, God did this. And there was morning and there was evening the second day. God did this and there was morning and there was evening. You know. So there is this poetic, this rhythm to Genesis chapter 1. And that's kind of what's characteristic of, of Hebrew poetry. Uh, if you look at Psalm chapter 1, uh, it's important to remember that when these books were written, they were not written with verses and chapters. And those are things that have been added. And in many Bibles today, you will see that the, the text is arranged in more of a lyrical form, or more, uh, more of a stanza-type form. And Psalm chapter 1 is true, uh, true to that. Um, and what I've done, and I'm going to read this, but I'm, I'm going to read kind of line by line how, how this was originally written. And um, hopefully that can give us a little bit of a sense of what we're talking about when we're talking about poetry. Because when we think about poetry, I think a lot of times we think about things that rhyme. Um, and, and that's not necessarily the case in the Hebrew, um, although in the original language we do get a little bit of that. But it's more about uh, the way things are organized and the, the kind of the rhythm or the meter to the form. And so Psalm, Psalm 1, I'm, I'm going to kind of read this and I'm going to pause in between the lines to give you a sense of what we're talking about here. So, it says, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. That's verse 1 of Psalm 1. Um, and, And hopefully you noticed there that all of those lines related to each other. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. So the psalmist is saying, these are all of the people who are happy. Verse 2, but their delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law they meditate day and night. So he's taking a turn here. He's saying, happy are those And he just describes people who are happy. And then he says why they're happy. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. That's verse 2. Verse 3, they are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all they do, they prosper. So, we began by talking about people who are happy, those who don't follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. Those are three groups of people who are happy. And they're happy because their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law they meditate day and night. And so then the psalmist describes them as trees. So, you want to talk about figurative language. Here's figurative language. They are like trees... Planted by streams of water. They aren't actually trees. They aren't literally trees. They are like trees. Planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all they do, they prosper. So, here's who's happy. Here's why they're happy. And here's what they are like. Because they are happy. And because they delight in the law of the Lord. Then the psalmist turns again. And begins talking about the wicked. He said, the wicked are not so. This is verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So they aren't like trees. The wicked aren't like trees. The wicked are like chaff that gets blown away by the wind. Verse 5. Therefore, because they are like this, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, this is verse 6, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, 
but the way of the wicked will perish. And so the rhythm that we find in Psalm 1 is that as the psalmist describes these different groups of people, namely those who are happy um, because their delight is in the law of the Lord, and then those who are wicked, these are kind of the two primary groups, that he presents these people, and then each line that, that follows the initial line kind of presenting the group of people, it uh, supports the previous line in some way. And if you just start reading through the Psalms, you'll begin to notice this. Um, and here, here are just a few things to look for. Typically, the second line, and if you're, if you're kind of going verse by verse, the, you know, the second line is going to echo the previous line, or it's going to provide a contrast to it. Um, also, the second line is subordinate to what precedes it, providing the means or the reason or the time of the first line. Um, the second line can just continue the previous thought, right? The, 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 they're like trees planted by streams of living water. It's just continuing that thought. Um, the second line can give a comparison to the previous line. It could say, um, you know, they're not like this, or those people are also like these people or something. Um, next, the second line sometimes makes the previous line more specific. Or the second line intensifies in some way the idea of the previous line. And, and so as you start to read through uh, Hebrew poetry, Song of Solomon or the Book of Psalms, um, you'll begin to kind of catch on to this rhythm where the psalmist presents something and then provides additional lines that support it or provides a comparison or a contrast or um, further clarification or something like that. And so just take note of that as you're reading through the Psalms, and I think it will help you uh, understand them and interpret them in in a much better way. Uh, And then let's wrap up today by just talking about prophecy. We've talked a little bit about prophecy already, um, but let's just, just describe some characteristics of prophecy in the Bible. And then we will be done. Uh, First of all, there are only really two types of prophecy that we find in the Bible. And when we talk about prophecy, we're we're talking about a a kind of a message from God. This is a like, thus saith the Lord type thing. And sometimes these things are very uh, clear and literal. And sometimes they are very uh, mystical and uh, obtuse and figurative in nature. But they're really, they only relate to two different kinds of things. So... One type of prophecy uh, are announcements of disaster, and the other type of prophecy uh, are announcements of salvation. Announcements of disaster and announcements of salvation. So let's look at an announcement of disaster. Uh, This is Micah, the book of Micah, chapter 1 in the Old Testament. And uh, it says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. All right. <laughs> Announcement of disaster, right? It's intense. Like there's some, some pretty, it's pretty clearly, uh, it's pretty clearly presented to the readers or the hearers of this that God is not pleased. And, um, and I hope you just took note of some of the language that was used there. And also we saw in verse 5 that there's a really clear explanation as to why God is upset. He says, all this 
is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And what was this transgression of Jacob? Micah says, is it not Samaria? Um, And so that's an announcement of disaster, and we'll look at a couple of rules about some of this stuff in just a second. Let's look at an announcement of uh, celebration um, or salvation. Amos chapter 9, the book of Amos chapter 9, it says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild and rebuild it as in the days of old. They uh, that may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Okay, so that's an announcement of salvation. God's saying, I'm going to restore you. Um, I'm going to restore you to your land. I'm going to take care of you. Um, And uh, never again uh, shall you be uprooted, is what the prophecy says. And so, so let's just talk quickly about interpreting some of this stuff. So we've seen an example of a prophecy concerning disaster, and we've seen an example of a prophecy concerning salvation. Um, what are some rules that we want to follow in trying to interpret this stuff? Well, first of all, we want to aim to understand the historical situation that the prophecy emerges from and who the prophecy is aimed at. So no matter what book, particularly in the Old Testament, no matter what book you're reading, whether it's Amos or you're reading Ezekiel, or you're reading Isaiah, it doesn't matter. There is a historical, socio-political world that was contemporaneous with the writing of that book that we need to be aware of. And it can be difficult to interpret it if we don't know what's kind of going on in the culture at that time. You know, are the people of Israel in Israel, or are they in exile? Are they in Babylon? Uh, what, what's happening? These are all things that we need to know. Are they returning from exile? So we want to aim to understand the historical situation the prophecy emerges from. And also, who is this for, right? Who's this prophecy aimed at? Secondly, we want to determine the nature of the judgment or the blessing that the prophet announces. What is God going to do? What does he say? Um, And also, we'll see that, you know, typically... The prophet will clearly state why God is sending judgment. We saw this in that uh, text in Micah. Um, He says it's because of Samaria. Typically, a prophet will clearly state why God is sending judgment on his people or against other nations. And so we want to figure out what's the historical situation. We want to determine the nature of the judgment or the blessing that the prophet announced. And then we want to discover the reasons for the Lord's actions for or against the recipients. And that's going to help us out there. Uh, Amos chapter 9 um, that we just looked at, this passage about raising up the booth of David, or some translations say the tent of David that had fallen. Uh, one other rule is we want to, in interpreting this stuff, we want to look to the New Testament authors. Um, what did they say? about some of these passages. Because Jesus has clearly told us that the law and the prophets um, and the Psalms, that all of these things are ultimately about him and that he's the fulfillment of all of this stuff. And so you look at the New Testament and you see Jesus and Peter and Paul, and you see them like explaining to us what some of these Old Testament prophecies meant and how they are fulfilled in Jesus. And Amos chapter 9 is an example of something that is fulfilled in and through Jesus. And we know that because we see it again in Acts chapter 15. And this is a passage in Acts 15 known as the Jerusalem Council. And what was happening in the early church was the apostles and other disciples and followers of Jesus were going and they were taking the gospel 
to the world, and they were making disciples, and they were seeing people come to know Jesus. And one of the things that's happening is it's not just the Jews who are coming to know Jesus. In fact, by and large, uh, the Jews were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And so the people who are coming to know Jesus through the ministry of guys like Paul and others were Gentiles. They weren't Jews by heritage. Um, they were heathens. They were pagans. And so these, these men are coming to, and women who are coming to know Jesus. And, and so the early apostles are kind of going, whoa, wait a second, what do we do with this? Because maybe we thought that this was only for us. Maybe we thought this was only for the Jews. And yet these Gentiles are not only claiming to know Jesus, but they're receiving the Holy Spirit as well. Like we're seeing God's power in them. So it's clear that God is, is moving here and he's doing something. And now we have to kind of figure out what do we do with that? So Acts 15, it says, after they finished speaking, this is verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So right there, Uh, James, in the book of Acts, quotes that passage from the book of Amos. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. And so there, James is going, hey, this is fulfillment of Old Testament uh, prophecy. And so we want to interpret that passage in Amos in the way that James interprets the passage uh, in Amos. And we want to go, hey, this is actually looking forward to a time when the gospel will go out and non-Jews will come to know Jesus and will be saved and will receive the Holy Spirit and their lives will be changed. And so when we talk about the New Testament authors and the way that they viewed what we know as Old Testament prophecy, here's what we know. First of all, They believed, the New Testament writers believed that Jesus was the anticipated Messiah. So much of the Old Testament prophecy is about uh, the coming Messiah. And we see glimpses of this just over and over and over again from the earliest points in Scripture. The New Testament authors believed that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of this stuff. Secondly, They believed that Israel's covenants, and we looked at covenants several weeks ago, um, the covenant that God made with Abraham, the covenant that God made with Moses and with David, that Jesus um, is the fulfillment of those things, and that Israel's covenants and Israel's mission, right, that Israel, this mission to be a blessing to the nations that God had for Israel in the Old Testament that those things are now being fulfilled in the church. This is the perspective of the New Testament authors. Now, this doesn't mean that the nation of Israel, like as a uh, political entity or as a kind of uh, human, you know, geographical entity, it doesn't mean that that vanishes, but that the purpose of Israel to be a blessing to the nations, to be the people of God, that that is now continued after Jesus, that is now continued through the church. Israel's covenants, Israel's mission is now uh, being fulfilled in the church. The New Testament authors also believed that any uh, prophecy about... um, Any prophecy that wasn't fulfilled in Christ, that seems to be unfulfilled, um, is is ultimately pointing us to the end of the age. It's pointing us to the end of time. So certainly when we talk about like the book of Revelation, um, and and even some things in the Old Testament that we don't clearly have an answer on, is this something that has been fulfilled or not fulfilled? Um, that by and large the New Testament authors felt like those things were referring to the end of the age um, or the end of time as we know it. They they were pointing to this point where uh, Jesus will ultimately return. And then in line with what we said a second ago, uh, for the New Testament authors, Israel is often equated with the church. 
And uh, it's very clear to me that the church is the new Israel in the New Testament. And again, it doesn't mean that there isn't an Israel in the world today, and it doesn't mean that there aren't Jews in the world today, but that the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament, um, the purpose of the covenant that God made with Abraham, this idea that Israel would be a blessing to the nations, that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the nations, that ultimately that is fulfilled in Jesus, right? Jesus is the perfect offspring of Abraham. He is the king sitting on the throne uh, that was prophesied in uh, the books of um, the books of First uh, and Second Samuel with David. Um, he is the descendant of David who sits on the throne. Um, Jesus is the new Adam who is who is the perfect man and the sinless man. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. And Jesus reproduced himself in the disciples, and he then sent them to reproduce themselves. And we see the Holy Spirit of God no longer dwelling in a temple, but rather dwelling within the hearts of human beings. And that this is the promise of Jesus. This is what he has uh, empowered the church with so that we can go and do what he sent his disciples to do, which is to go and make more disciples and to share this gospel message. And so I think this gets a little bit confusing for people in today's world. Um, And and we don't have to go into all of this, but um, I think some people think that that anybody who's Jewish will will just be saved. And I, I, I don't... I don't understand how you arrive at that if you read the New Testament. Um, Because the New Testament is very clear that salvation is only through Christ, that it is uh, through faith alone in Christ, and that outside of faith in Jesus Christ, it is impossible to be saved. Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me. No one. Um... And then as the church is sent, we see not only Jews, but also Gentiles who are coming to know Jesus, who are being empowered with His Holy Spirit. And so it's just clear to me um, and to to many, 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 many many people that uh, the intention of the New Testament authors was to say, hey, the church is this new people of God. It's not just made up of people who are Jews by heritage. It's made up of all who call on the name of the Lord. So, we're going to kind of wrap up with that thought. And um, if you want to dig into that a little bit more, uh, I would encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And there's a a lot of great content in there. Uh, You could also look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And um, if you have any questions about any of that, you can always contact me. Uh, It's just Weston, uh, if you want to email, it's just Weston, W-E-S-T-O-N, at thecovenantchurch.com. And uh, that's it. We're going to be done for today, and uh, we'll see you guys next week as we begin our study of gospel fluency. Take care.